risen Lord, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your name, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your glorious name, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. And Father, I pray that we would be a people who would be quick to return your blessings for praise, that we would understand the source of all good things and as we recognize that source, Lord, we would give you the glory. So once again, as we gather together, opening your word, we pray that you would bless us. I pray, Father, that we would praise you through the obedience to your word. And so, Lord, we lift up this last chapter of Chronicles and pray, Father, that we would finish this book well, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbor? My wife's an angel and she sings. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I, I tried to correct myself. That's why I don't say much. Hello, Linda. Well, as I said in my prayer, tonight we are finishing 1 Chronicles chapter 29. We've done 29 chapters. I believe tonight is going to be our seventh study in the book of Chronicles which for us, I guess for me, is a new world's record uh, in getting through. Considering this morning in our study in First Peter, we only did two verses, but um, it was intended to be a survey through First Chronicles, um, praying about what book to go to next. Anybody have any suggestions? <laughs> we'll be going to Second Chronicles next. Um, and it'll be the same format. We'll be doing a survey through Second Chronicles, probably be a little bit longer because the book is a little bit longer but we'll see what the Lord has for us there. Haven't decided um, where we're going to go after we finish Second Chronicles as far as Sunday nights. I know that at some point, and I think I may do it Sunday morning at some point, um, at the Bible College, I'm teaching Genesis and go through the book of Genesis. We've been through, well, we've been through all the books of the Bibles other than Second Chronicles, but we haven't been through Genesis and 15, 18 years, something along those lines. And so praying along those lines. And so as we arrive back at First Chronicles in chapter 29, it, what we're going to see is, is the last of what we started in the previous two chapters. These are King David's final days. His son Solomon is being prepared for the throne of Israel. We'll see in studies to come that he is overwhelmed by this. Matter of fact, when God asked him what he would bless him with, what Solomon would be desired to be blessed by God with, he asked for wisdom because he understood that this work to govern God's people and to do all that God has called of him to do, he realized it was bigger than him. And so in these last three chapters, we've been invited into a national convention for the purpose of the coronation of Solomon as king. And so tonight we'll be saying hello to Solomon, but tonight we'll also be say we'll also be saying goodbye to King David. We're going to divide chapter 29 into four parts. We'll be looking at in verses 1 through 9 a contribution, 
verses 10 through 19, a consecration, verses 20 through 25, a coronation, and then verses 26 through 30, a commemoration. Again, the backdrop here isn't just the coronation of Solomon, but it's also the planning and the preparation for the construction of the temple. Again, the tabernacle, well, that was that portable tent as the Jews wandered through the wilderness. They since have entered into the promised land, and they've been, out, been, they've been without a permanent dwelling place for God. And finally, David has it laid upon his heart to build this temple, but God told him that he's disqualified for doing so, and that he was a man of blood. He wanted a man of peace to build his temple, and, well, that will be fulfilled in Solomon. The temple, again, is the dwelling place of God, and so this would be man's perceived knowledge of God dwelling amongst us, and even so much more for the temple to be located in Jerusalem. You'll have that perfect joining together of the king and the priest, the king and King David in his line as he represents the people politically, but also the priest as he makes the sacrifice in the uh, the temple and covering the sins of mankind so that man would be able to have communion with God. And so King David, I described him because God described him, he did in Acts chapter 13 verse 22, as a man after God's own heart while he's preparing to depart. A man after God's own heart, I think it's important, I've mentioned that quite a few times, sure it sounds familiar to you, it's important to understand that because as we can look at King David, and we can see this guy was anything but perfect, But again, it's not about our perfection. It's never about our works of righteousness. It's always about having a heart for the Lord and the things of the Lord. So David did some pretty bad things. He did some pretty mighty sins, but it wasn't about that. It was about the heart to repent and to get right with God and to continue to pursue and seek after the Lord, never giving up, never quitting. Solomon in Ecclesiastes will later write in chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? As the fool. Therefore I hated life because of the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all his vanity and grasping for the wind. It's believed that those words were written towards the end of Solomon's life. And I would imagine, I don't know if he was for sure thinking back to the death of his father, but you can put that into that equation that dad, dad David died just as the fool died and that he went the way of all of mankind. That sooner or later, we all go, it's a matter of where was your heart? What was the foundation of your life? What was the decision you made concerning Christ? And it was the blessing of last week as we had our Um, trunk or treat we gave an invitation and people came to Christ and it was just a blessing to see that happen to see a life changed and we need to once again understand that we need to find joy in that in the song my hope is built on nothing less the first stanza goes my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus's blood and righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus name On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. There's nothing that will be able to strengthen us in the last day when we draw our last breath in this world. 
Well, in David's mind, this temple is an extension of the affections of his heart. And the affection of his heart is God and the promises of God. We saw King David's life start off as a young shepherd boy out in the field. And it was just him, especially as we read through these Psalms, as he's looking into the vastness of the stars and the heavens and just contemplating God. Something that man doesn't do as much as they did back then because, well, we've got the internet, we've got TV, we've got so much to take our attention. But back then, especially in the nighttime, man would contemplate on the Lord and the things of the Lord. Consider the goodness of God and all that God has done. Do you take time to meditate upon the Lord? Because a heart that takes time to meditate upon him will show an adoration and an appreciation for all that God has done. We may refer to it a little bit differently as far as counting our blessings. Have you counted your blessings? Because in order to count them, you must recognize them. And if you recognize them, you'll recognize the source of them. And how good God has been to all of us and how he has watched over and kept us. We've been through hard times. We've been through difficult days. And there's hard times and difficult days ahead of us. But God has got us through all of them. And so the first thing that we're going to see is a contribution. Verses 1 through 3. Furthermore, King David said to all the assembly, now keep in mind, all the representatives of Israel is before him, all the representatives of the family, and there's probably thousands upon thousands of people. Furthermore, King David said to all the assembly, my son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great because the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now for the house of my God, I have prepared with all of my might Gold for things to be made of gold, silver for things of silver, bronze for things of bronze, iron for things of iron, wood for things of wood, onyx stones to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones and marble slabs in abundance. Moreover, besides that, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver. And so once again, where your, where your heart is, there your, or where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Well, we see this expressed in King David. He understands that the work is great, but he wants this building to be great because he understands that the building does minister. When, when people see the building, now, especially, you know, ours, it's just, you know, these walls that we see here, but it's that special place that we have fellowship together. It's that place that we go to meet God. It's that place where we're taught and prepared for every good work. Well, it's just that place that can be so, so in our minds that we're separated from the world and the things of the world for the purpose of the training, the training that the Lord has. And again, that can happen anywhere, but as we're in this place, as we're in the house of God, we come to a higher awareness of it. And so David, through the construction, now again, he's not going to be around, but Solomon, as he constructs it, but David's of the mindset that God, although he's with us, he's going to be with us to a, well, to a higher awareness. We'll have a higher awareness of the presence of God. As God has established the nation Israel and kept nation Israel, Israel is to give back in their worship to the Lord. And so David understands that the temple was not a place for man to reach up to God, but for God to reach down to mankind. And again, it's the same with the church. 
in Genesis chapter 11. I'm teaching that at the Bible college right now, and we're looking at the Tower of Babel and mankind as they're constructing this, this, this temple, if you will, to look up into the heavens, man became... Man became distracted from maybe even what was his original tent, if it was in fact pure at the beginning, and now he's turned his heart to idolatrous ways. And so there is the opportunity to glorify God through what we do, but we have to keep it in proper perspective, and that's going to be King David's um, encouragement to his son. And so it's the same thing in the things that we do and the house that we build for the Lord. The house that we build for the Lord as far as our hearts, according to the word of God, the physical presence, that it is not to be a, a, uh, a cathedral of man's work, but it is to be an expression of what is necessary for God's people to gather together to worship him. But there is to be an investment required of man, an investment of energy, efforts, and effects. David understands this, that this work is going to be great. It's going to take much treasure in order to honor God the way he believes that God so desires to be honored. That those who pass by and those who gaze upon that building would realize there's something special in the hearts of these people concerning that God. And he wants it to be big, he wants it to be grand, and he wants it to be glorious. On the way over here... There's a uh, RV, and the RV was parked off on Philadelphia by one of the candidates, and they have a couple of their posters on the side of the RV, and they have uh, another poster for one of the mayor, mayoral candidates on the front of the uh, RV as well. And I'm just looking at that, and I'm thinking, the thing is junky, and it's broken down, and you know, it's sitting, kind of littering the city streets here. And you're kind of thinking, if I vote for that guy, is that the way the city is going to look? You know, according to this broken down, falling apart RV. And the idea is, is that where things are important to us, where our heart is, where our passions are, well, those things, those things, we'll put forth our effort, we'll put forth our expenses. Look at our homes the effort and the time that we put in our homes, the effort and time maybe put into the maintenance of a car or whatever. Those things are expensive. We want to be good stewards. And so we put our effort into those things, how much more so the house of the living God. So what we must consider when it comes to a place of worship, what is it worth to us? What is it worth to us? Yeah, the building, without a doubt. But it all depends upon what your priorities truly are. And so... We come into the place, and there should, be, there should be that mindset as we're even pulling into the parking lot of coming to this place, of meeting the faces that are here, meeting our God because the word is going to be going out. It's the preparation of our heart. Now, this can be done anywhere, and this can be done by ourselves, can be done out in the boondocks somewhere in the mountains of the desert, whatever it might be. But what we have here is this place that we know that God has given us. I was in my office one day. We had to be out of our old location. Somebody came knocking on my door and asked if we were interested in a, in a building. And we ended up over here, and we've been here now for close to 15 years. And in being in this place, it's just been a, a blessing in what God has done. And so we put our affections towards the house of God because this is the place where we're taught This is the place that we are worshiped, and this is the place where people come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
And so Jesus addressed this concept of what David is considering of finances, priorities, and worship. What is our priority? Well, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself or store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When that word lay up, do not lay up for yourself, the word can be translated stockpile. And so as far as my physical treasures, my wealth, whatever it might be, it's wise to save money. It's wise to have something, to save something for retirement. That's why, you know, Dave Ramsey would say we sh- you should have an emergency fund. I don't remember. I think it was like three to six months of your pay saved up and put in an account for emergency. I don't see that as stockpiling or laying up. That's just being a good steward. But at what point do you have enough so that you're able to release some into somebody else's life for the purpose of ministry? This is someone, the stockpiler, who accumulates much, much more than they can possibly use. Remember Y2K, you know, the year 2000, there there was going to be a glitch in the computers if you weren't around back then, but there was going to be a glitch in the computers and our whole society was going to fall apart that night on New Year's Eve. And there was even... Even people who I consider to be good teachers, but especially in the Christian community, there was this mindset of storing up and stockpiling. And it even got to a particular place where there were people who were selling bunkers. You could have a bunker built in your backyard. Gun sales were at an all-time high, even in the Christian community. And I'm thinking, how does this work out? As a Christian, I store and I stockpile But what happens then, let's say we did go upside down in Y2K and and the hungry comes knocking at my door. What what happens then when somebody who's naked and in need of clothing comes knocking at my door? You know, we're building bunkers and arming ourselves. Is that of the Lord? No. God gives for the purpose of distribution, of exemplifying him. As he has given to me, he has called me to give to others, and as I do so, I'm representing the Lord Jesus Christ, especially as needs are being taken care of. Needs are being taken care of. Well, what if there is somebody who is just praying one night for for food? What if somebody is praying for for food or clothing or whatever it might be, and I have the ability to answer that prayer? Now, it's not me who is answering that prayer. It's God who has first given to me that I am, and in turn, able to give to others. Treasures, treasuries is the place in which the good and precious things are collected and laid up. It's whatever it is, whatever it is that you make a priority of your life. My wife and I, when we first got married, we were renting an old house in Brea. Mrs. Savash owned it. She was our landlord. And every month, I would go and pay the rent. Now, Mrs. Savash always wanted me to come over to her house and and pay the rent there. And every time I went over there, I always left with something. She would always give me something. One day, I came home. She discovered Martinelli's, you know, the apple sparkling apple cider. She thought it was the greatest stuff in the world. And I remember I came home with a bottle of Martinelli's, and my wife just thought that was funny. But usually what I came home with was some Avon, because Mrs. Savash was in to Avon. Don't laugh. (laughs) Um, 
she was into Avon in that none of her kids, I mean, she was probably at that time, I guess, in her 50s or 60s, none of her children lived at home. And every one of her rooms, they were stuffed with Avon. All of the closets, Avon was all categorized and it was all set in place. And you would go in there and you would think, something strange, something different. I mean, nicest woman in the world. I don't want to say anything bad. But, you know, I I was thinking when I was thinking about this, when disaster hits, I know where to get Avon. (laughs) Mrs. Savash's house. I don't know what good it's going to do. And so these are the things that we have to look at as our priority. What am I storing up? What am I treasuring? Are they the things that are useful for eternity? Or are they things useful for temporal existence here on earth? What is wrong with earthly treasures? Well, Jesus said they don't last. Why? Because of moth and rust. The best clothing of the day back in the Lord's day was made of wool. And moths, they just love wool. The word rust could also be translated in eating away, but it just speaks of the natural deterioration of things. I remember I was, had this friend that I used to work with. This was in 1994. And I remember he, we were going to go golf together, and I, had never golf, I hadn't golfed probably in about 20 years. And he wanted to get a new pair of golf shoes, and so he did, and he gave me his old golf shoes. And I just thought they were kind of cool, and I was happy. It was a friend of mine, and I was just, I treasured them to a degree. And so we played golf that day, and I always kept the golf shoes. And I knew if I ever play golf, I've got the golf shoes. Well, it was about 94 to, it was about 13 years later. The golf shoes, they sat in my closet all that time. And finally, I had an opportunity. Another church was having a golf tournament, and I didn't have golf clubs, but I had shoes. And so I brought the shoes, and, and I, uh, I, I went with, uh, Sal and I went, and I went with Sal, and sitting in the parking lot, and I'm putting on the shoes, and he hears the sound, and he goes, are those steel shoes, you know, steel cleats on the bottom of them? And I go, yeah, they're kind of cool. He goes, I don't think they allow them. See, in the time, it kind of had passed me by that no longer could you wear steel shoes, but you had to have uh, plastic or rubber spikes. So anyway, I'm oblivious to the whole thing. I'm not really paying attention to what Sal's saying. And and I'm walking, and he says, what's that trail you're, you're leaving behind? And I looked behind me, and the bottom of the shoes had deteriorated. You know, they were plastic, and it was just completely falling apart until the whole sole of the shoe fell apart. And I'm just looking at these things that I so treasured. Well, the moth and the rust that came in, and my little treasure, my little treasure was destroyed. Sooner or later, the car you drive is going to break down. Your sports team, if you're a Ram fan today, they lost. Where maintenance becomes a greater burden than the joy of ownership, things have gone upside down. Again, keeping these things in proper priority. Instead of earthly treasures, David has set his affection on this great work that God will do through his son that he'll never see, but it's in faith that he has this desire to support it. Again, verse 3, moreover, you know, all of these riches, all of these things that I have gotten, he says, moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God. He's understanding with the knowledge of God and this temple, the place where sacrifice is going to be offered, people are going to come and they are going to worship the holy God. People are going to come and they are going to serve God in that place. People are going to come, as I said before, they're going to bring the sacrifice and their sins will be covered. 
And he's understanding the magnitude of, of what is possible here. And, it, and it's just filled his, his heart with affection. Now, later on, Solomon is in Ecclesiastes once more. He's going to be looking at all of these things that we consider to be so important. Possessions and servants, groves of, of fruit trees and so on and so forth. And he's going to come to the same conclusion and all the stuff and all of these things. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. There's absolutely no lasting substance to these things. And so in actuality, David's greatest contribution to the building of the temple was simply the affection of his heart. Because as we'll see, it's through the affection of his heart that others were inspired as well. And again, not so much relating it to a physical building, but the work that God does within a building. The lives who are changed. Because again, you know, if you're a member of this church... If you serve in this church, if you give in this church, if you participate in this church, God has used you more than you'll ever know. Used you in, in that people who were counseled, and there was a place for that to go on, and, and, and there was a pastor here for, in order to do that. People, people who were hungry, people who needed to be clothed, people who had a need to pay a bill or whatever it might be. We don't announce that to the church. But everybody in this church has had a part in that. And it's this great work that God does. Why? Because his people set their affection on what God does. When it came to the building of a dwelling place of God, as Israel were wandering through the wilderness, God told Moses to make a collection. He told to go to the people. Now, God could have spoken whatever is necessary into existence. That tabernacle, and the same thing with Solomon's temple, God could have spoken into existence. God could have done a better job himself. But this collection that was to be made from the people both here and also in the book of Exodus was not to be taken from just anyone, but there was to be one major qualification. We see it here in Chronicles, and we'll see it as we go into Second Chronicles, but I want to look at Exodus 25, verses 1 and 2. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone, not just go and get an offering from the people. Don't go holding a gun to their head. Don't go taking it out of their pocket. But he wants it from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. Everybody that has a heart for the work of the Lord and what God wants to do. That's why we speak of our, our collection here as far as God loving a cheerful giver, God loving somebody who is just able to give as an expression of their heart. It ought not to be by compulsion. You never should give because you think you have to. You never should give because you think God needs what you have. You give as an expression of worship. It should be an element, there should be an element of joy in your life to your giving. Writing out a check, putting money in an envelope, and now we even can do it electronically and whatever. That needs to be an expression of your worship of the Lord and what God is able to do through that gift that is given. Both Moses and David were to receive of those who were God's people who gave it willingly and again from their heart. And that's the only way you can do it joyfully is understanding that what I'm giving is going to be used for the kingdom of God. We use that illustration, <clears throat> at least Peter did, in 
First Peter chapter 2 a couple of weeks ago of building that great structure up in the heavens. Our giving here goes towards that great building that God is, is doing. This is giving from our substance for the purpose of God's service. And again, there's so much that, that needs to be done. In Ontario, just people who are dying apart from Jesus Christ. And again, God just gave me a picture. Maybe a reminder would be a better term as we put our resources towards reaching into the community last week. And it can be easy to do when, you know, the calendar says to do so on Halloween or Easter or Christmas, whatever it might be. But how much when it's out of season? We're looking, as I've mentioned before, it's been a slow process, but you'll be hearing more and more about it as partnering with Mercy House and reaching into the homeless community to actually really be proactive in our Christian faith and get it outside these doors. Again, through the sharing of the Word of God because that's definite necessity, but also giving of our substance, giving of our time, our energy, and our efforts and our effects that God would be glorified through that. Now, not just going and feeding a person, but ministering to that person to express the love of Christ, because that's what Jesus did. He wasn't in a building expecting people to come to him. Christ went amongst the people. And as you look at the Gospels, what is he constantly doing? He's constantly going from Jerusalem up to Galilee, Galilee down to Jerusalem, and back and forth, went on some other side trips. But he was constantly making that that trip. I don't remember how far it is from Jerusalem to Galilee. I believe it's like 60, 80 miles, something like that. If I told you you had to walk 60 to 80 miles next week, you would probably rebel and go to a different church. But it's something that they did regularly. And what is it that would motivate somebody to do something like that? Well, the Lord, we understand. But the apostles, it was for the purpose of ministering to those who so needed what Christ had to offer. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, So let each one as he purposes in his heart not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. You are a cheerful giver when you give, when your giving is as a result to what God has done within your life. How cheerful were these people, or at least the people that I mentioned back in Exodus? Well, in Exodus chapter 36, verse 6, So Moses gave a command, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary, and the people were restrained from bringing. Can you imagine coming to church one day and say, Don't give. We've got way too much right now. Well, that's kind of what was going on for the temple. They had an abundance of what was necessary for the work that God had called them to. Why? Because you see that expression of those people's hearts. Now, understand where they had come from. They had come from the clutches of Egypt. They saw God with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm reach into Egypt and deliver them. They're understanding the magnitude of their salvation. Now, They were hard-hearted at times. They were stiff-necked at other times. But here, God softened their hearts, and they expressed their hearts through the giving that God had called them to do. Back in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 3 through 9, Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver, 3,000 talents of gold of the gold of uh, offer. Offer is 
Ophir is a, a country that it, it was probably a jumping off point or a collection point, more than likely either in India or in Africa, in which riches were collected and then they were sent over or they were funneled to Israel. And so it was known for its fine gold. So Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the houses the gold for things of gold and the silver for things of silver and for all kinds of work to be done by the hands of craftsmen, who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord, separate himself this day to the Lord? Then the leaders of the father's house, now this is in response to what David has done, then the leaders of the father's houses, the leaders of the tribes of Israel, so this would be the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel and and their various divisions within them, the captains of the thousands and hundreds and the officers over the king's work offered willingly because David offered from his heart. They then in turn were willing to offer from their heart. Verse 7, they gave for the work of the house of God 5,000 talents, 10,000 uh, derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord into the hand of Jehiel, the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced, for they had offered willingly because with a loyal heart they have offered willingly to the Lord. And King David also rejoiced greatly. Three things came about because King David's display of his affection to God. Now, as I've said so many times before, you are a leader in the body of Christ. There's somebody that looks up to you as being a leader. And so as David was a leader of this whole country, but he had an effect just through displaying the affections of his heart for his Lord. And we see that, well, three things that came about because of David's display of his affection for God. He was generous. The people were generous. His giving was contagious. Well, it became contagious in the body. His giving produced a reverence as well. Verse 9, then the people rejoiced for they had offered willingly because with a loyal heart they had offered willingly to the Lord and King David also rejoiced greatly. There was this reverence in that they know that they're given for the cause to which God has called them to give. And so there's an excitement here. Now, all of this, not just to cause... Matter of fact, Scott in a minute is going to come up and and take another offering. But uh, no, it's not about that. It's all about having a heart for what God wants to do. What does God want to do in your life? What does God want to do through your life in this church and through this church? I'm only able to take it so far. Matter of fact, God's laid it upon my heart to teach at the Bible college, and that's taken about two days out of my work week. God wants us to pull together. God wants to give you vision for the work that needs to happen. Not just in giving, but also in participating. And, and that there's, there's a great homeless population. You can look at that here in Ontario. But there's a great population of people who are perishing as well. And looking at it from that perspective, and I don't know, there's other perspectives in which God has not laid upon my heart what maybe he has laid upon your heart. But you know what the biggest part of my job here is? The biggest part is to teach the word. But next to that, the biggest part is to see God's will in your life come to pass. That's what I'm here for. And and don't sell yourself short because, again, looking at the Bible, God does great things through common people who just simply have an ear for the Lord and what God's calling them to do. 
the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, what we call the hall of faith, those people who were of faith, they were common people, and some of them were scared to do what God called them to do, but they, they did it anyway. They were moving into the unknown. These things that God had called them to do were bigger than they were, but they still moved forward. And because they moved forward, God was honored and people were ministered to. What's God calling you to do? Maybe just ministering to a kid in the room next door. Maybe it's some outreach in the, in the city of Ontario. I don't know, but as they say, the possibilities are endless because we serve a big God. Learn to step outside of yourself. Learn to put it all out on the line. Make yourself vulnerable before the Lord. Well, what if I do that when, you know, I, I get, you know, Pastor Mike and then the church becomes involved and I talk to people and everybody knows it. And what happens if it fails? Ministry never fails. Anybody who has a heart for the Lord and the things of the Lord will never fail. It may not even be according to the will of God exactly, but as long as you have that heart, you'll never fail in the sight of God. And as long as one person is ministered to, it will always be worth it. We so evaluate things based upon numbers, but God evaluates things based upon souls. And I'm not talking about numbers of souls, but as far as meeting souls where they are at. So secondly, after their contribution, we see this consecration, verses 10 through 19. Again, David just understanding what God is doing and publicly worshiping God because of it. Verse 10, Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory and the majesty, and all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore... Our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you and of your own we have given to you. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you as were all of our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand and is all your own. I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in the uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all of these things, and now with joy I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers kept this forever in the intent of the thoughts of the heart of your people and fixed their heart before you. And give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes to do all these things and to build the temple for which I have made provision. And so it's one thing to gather together all of the things and all of the stuff 
It's another thing to get all the people together, but David understood the necessity of leadership, and especially the leadership that was going to be required of his son Solomon. And he's asking God, just as he has been motivated, that God would motivate him. Just one concept I want to look at in this second point, as far as verse 14 and verse 16, notice the perspective of giving that David has. That is all we are actually doing. Whenever we give of an offering, is all back then and, and even today, they're just giving of what is God's already. We're, we're just giving of what God has first given to us. And again, that's the dynamic of, of what our giving is. God takes a portion of what is his, and he has given it to you. God has given you the job that you work any finances that you have ever taken in, anything, it, it's all the Lord's. And so he has given to you. But what he asked is, is that you would trust him and you would give him some back. Now, tithe is what is mentioned in the Old Testament. My wife and I have always used a tithe or a tenth as the standard in our giving. But what are you able to give with a joyful heart? I mean, if you're looking at 10% and thinking, man, that's going to hurt, you know, and you, you, you have an issue with that, don't give 10%. If 1% is too much, then give a half a percent. If a half a percent is too much, then give a quarter percent. But do give to the Lord. Do give to God's work. And, and then you will see what God is able to do, and you'll see the blessings that he has for you, and you'll see how God multiplies multiplies just his blessings in your life. Now, this isn't health and wealth theology. This is just reality. And so God has, and it's all his, he gives a portion to you, and all he is asking is that you would give a portion back to him in faith to the measure of faith that you have. Now, the other day, my grandson was eating a popsicle, and I said, can Papa have a bite of your popsicle? In which he looked at me and he said, no. And I said, no, I just want, just give me a bite of your popsicle. And he yelled out, no. And he turned away from me. See, he doesn't under the, understand the concept. He thinks that popsicle is his, when in actuality, that popsicle is mine. I gave him the popsicle, and I can take the whole popsicle back. But I understand his element of maturity, and there's lessons to be learned. But as of right now, I let it go this time. But next time, there's going to be problems. <laughs> Well, that's the same thing God does. He gives to us, and he just asks that we in faith would give back to him. But unfortunately, sometimes our answer is no. But God is good, and God is gracious, and he teaches us, and he trains us. And God wants to bless us, and he wants us to open up our heart for his blessings. And we do so as we are generous with what God has given us for the work and for the purpose of ministry. And as we are, we'll just see God do great things. Thirdly, the contribution, consecration, and then Solomon's coronation, verses 20 through 25. Then David said to all the assembly, Now bless the Lord your God. So all the assembly blessed the Lord God of their fathers and bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before the Lord and the king. And they made sacrifices to the Lord and offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the next day, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand lambs, with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. So they ate and drank before the Lord with great gladness on that day. And they made Solomon, the son of David, king the second time. This is the second coronation. I'll get into that in a minute. And anointed him before the Lord to be the leader and Zadok to be the priest. 
Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord, not David's throne, but the throne of the Lord as king, instead of David his father, and prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. All the leaders and the mighty men, and also all the sons of King David, submitted themselves to King Solomon. So the Lord exalted Solomon exceedingly, in the sight of all Israel, and bestowed on him such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in Israel. The second anointing as king is because the first was in reaction to another of King David's sons that was trying to take the throne by force apart from the will of God. That was something that was kind of done in in private. This is now something that is done openly for the benefit of all the nations. And so, notice here, we're not told of the opinions of David's mighty men or David's sons, but God has placed his man upon the throne, and what did they do? They did what we should all do for the one who is placed upon the throne or in the office. They submitted to them. So, this brings up a good point. This coming Tuesday, we are going to have elections. Now, is our guy going to be elected and put in office? I don't know, Pastor Mike, who's our guy? Well, it doesn't matter. It's going to be God's guy. And whoever is put in office will be according to the will of God for his reasons and purposes. Now, some people you think were put there by the devil, but that's not what the Bible says. It says the governing authority has been placed there by the hand of God. Now, if God's people don't stand up and go vote, then we're going to have somebody that is contrary to biblical morals. Why? Because basically, we have chosen that person to be put into office because we refuse to vote. We are to be active participants in this process. Now, how does God move in a society? How does God move within a church? Somebody has a need. Somebody is is having a hardship. How does God move in their lives? Well, my experience, he does so through his people. And so how has God put the governing authority in place? Well... To have a biblically-based governing authority will have to be put there as the church rises up and fulfills our obligation to represent God. We are to represent God in all facets of society. And how much more so should we be representing God in the political arena? Pastor Mike, sometimes it seems like we're just voting for the worst of two evils. And I understand that, and that's a hard thing. And it does present certain dilemmas. But you know what? You look at the ballot. We still have voter's guides out there, I I think. You look at the voter's guide, and you cast your ballot accordingly with it based upon what the Bible says is good and right to the best of your ability with the choices that you have to make. But you need to be represented in uh, in, in that voting booth. It's essential that we as the church rise up. Now, we've had men who have men and women who have claimed to be Christians. Uh, we've had both Republican and Democrats, and it doesn't seem like a whole lot changes from time to time. It does make a difference according to what God desires, and it is an expression of our heart. We need to set our affections back upon this nation, and we do so by putting people who represent our beliefs in office. It's essential that we do that, keeping in mind who ultimately is the one who sits in the throne room of heaven. God has worked through donkeys and other avenues, and can do so again without a doubt, but 
I just believe that the votes that we cast through the person who's elected to office represents where our heart is before the Lord. How are we truly trusting in the Lord? We'll have somebody who make great financial promises, but as far as morally speaking, might be, you know, pro-abortion, pro, you know, whatever, whatever's contrary to the word, and we'll look at the finances, not trusting in God. And sometimes we'll look and we'll vote for that person rather than the person that is representing proper biblical morals, but maybe we're not going to get the return that we think we should. Ultimately, once again, it's all the Lord's. And remember, the Lord gives you a portion, and he's going to give you a portion no matter what. He's going to care for you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things, all of your needs will be given to you. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1, let every soul, that's everybody in this building or listening to this study, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment upon themselves. They'll be responsible, and part of the way that we would resist is by not voting. Verse 3, for the rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to the very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And you could say, well, I don't understand the evilness that runs for office today. When the apostle Paul wrote this, Nero, who was insane, was seated on the throne as emperor. And so that's who he is telling them that they are to be submitted to. And so we are to be submitted to the governing authorities. Now, to qualify that statement, there are three areas in which the Bible tells us that we are not to submit to the governing authorities. We are to submit generally to the governing authorities, but there are three exceptions. Maybe more, but I found three. First, we do not submit to the government when it seeks to hinder evangelism, when it seeks to hinder the word of God going out. Acts chapter 5, verse 28, the ruling authority told uh, Peter and John, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's, the Lord's, blood upon us. In verse 29, it says, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And so, as far as preaching the gospel, living the gospel out there, as far as doing outreaches, when I get asked to do the um, invocation and nobody's said contrary to me, I, they've asked for a Christian pastor to go and deliver the invocation, so I go up there and I read Bible verses and I pray in the name of Jesus. And if they told me not to do it, I would continue to do it. And if they don't want me, if they don't want it, then they can uninvite me. But there's nobody that is to stop the word of God. <clears throat> Secondly, we are not to submit to government if it seeks to hinder morality. There were those midwives, those Jewish midwives that Pharaoh commanded to kill the, the newborn sons. 
and anything that is contrary to the law of God or any law of man that is contrary to the law of God is not that which we will follow. We stand upon the word of God in the direction that God has given us. And then thirdly, we do not submit to the government if it seeks to hinder righteous justice, that which is right in the sight of God. Um, You know, we live in a time when there's abortions. Even your child can have an abortion without you even knowing of it. Uh, The purpose of the church, as far as what God has called the church to do and who God has uh, called the church to be. We've been called to separate, or we've been told that we need to separate church and state. That's an impossibility. And so whatever it is that is righteous justice, we are to move forward in that and to be proactive because of it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, kind of an extension of what I just read here, but Peter says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Notice honor the king and honor the people are in the same category, but God is separated from that and that we are to ultimately fear God. We're not to be afraid of man, but we are to fear the Lord. If you fear the Lord, then you need not be afraid of mankind, but we do need to honor the government. Back in First Chronicles, last point, and then we'll, we'll close, verses 26 through 30, we see a commemoration. Thus David, the son of Jesse, reign, Jesse reigned over all Israel, and the period that he reigned over Israel was 40 years Seven years he reigned in Hebron, and 33 years he reigned in Jerusalem, and he died. In a good old age, full of days and riches and honor, and Solomon his son reigned in his place. Now the acts of King David, first and last indeed, they are written in the book of Samuel the seer, in the book of Nathan the prophet, and the book of Gad the seer, with all of his reign and his might and the events that happened to him, to Israel, and all the kingdoms of the land. The books of Nathan, the prophet, and the book of Gad, they're not canon, they're not scripture. Um, We don't know even, we don't have the totality of those books, but we do have what is necessary in order to understand David's life and what God has done. And so we see this great work that God has done. And this man, this man David, is just a man. He went the way of all of men. I would imagine, as I said before, that Solomon saw Dad die and remembered the event when he penned Ecclesiastes, verse 16, for there is no remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does the wise man die? The same as the fool. He's understanding the necessity of making God the priority. And I'll close with this last verse. It's the conclusion that Solomon comes to in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. After looking at his, his kingdom and evaluating his kingdom, all that he had inherited, all that he has built, all that he has accumulated over the path of a lifetime, seeing people come and go. Verse 13 of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. David was not a perfect man, but he definitely had a fear of the Lord because he was a man after God's own heart. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, for your word and, Lord, these people who have gone before us and the examples that they've set. 
that, God, we would be able to look at these things and to hold on to these things and realize, God, that in your sight, we're all the same. We're just common people, but you use common people in great ways. Father, I pray that you would use us in great ways, that you would expand us, that you would disturb us out of our slumber, Lord, and you would cause us to push forward. And, and Lord, there's just so much to do out there. Fill us with your spirit and enable us for those purposes. Lord, I pray for those who have come out tonight. I pray that you would go before them. Pray that you would protect them as they travel and use us, Father, this coming week in ways that we had not expected that we would glorify you, Lord, and all that we do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? As I said, we'll be continuing on in Chronicles. We'll be going into Second Chronicles, continuing on doing a survey. The elections are this Tuesday. Go out and vote. You can pray for our church. We are a polling place. I'm not going to be serving this year in the election, but we have opened our church up for the county, and uh, we'll have quite a few people that come through here uh, for the election. So just continue to pray for that. Other than that, God bless you. Have a great week. Over all the earth, you reign on high. Every mountain stream, every sunset sky. But my one request, Lord, my only aim is that you reign in me again. Lord, reign in me, reign in your power. Over all my dreams, in my darkest hour. You are the Lord of all I am. So won't you reign in me again? Over every thought, over every word, may my life reflect beauty of my Lord cause you mean more to me than any earthly thing so won't you reign in me again Lord reign in me reign in your power over all my dreams in my darkest hour you are the Lord of all I am so won't you reign in again. Reign in me, reign in your power over all my dreams. In my darkest hour, you are the Lord of all I am. So won't you reign in me again? Good evening. God bless you guys. One thing Pastor Mike reminded me of is that uh, his wife is an angel and she does sing, so I stand corrected. God bless you guys. Have a great <laughs> evening.